Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 305, a very special BHP Valentine's Day episode. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Bethany, Catherine, and Carrie for signing up already. History is known for being a bit of a slog. Tracing events and people and social movements through decades and even centuries is a huge task, and the results are usually dense at the best of times. But every once in a while, in between all the battles and the politics and the dynasties, the record cradles a story so short and sweet and so perfect that it deserves to stand alone. And this Valentine's Day episode is just that sort of story. It begins in November of 955. The weather was turning colder, the harvest season had passed, and people were now spending more time indoors. This was a time to make the final preparations for winter. It was also a time for feasting. Thanks to the recent harvest, food was plentiful, at least for the powerful. And at the royal residences, November was a time for merriment, a time for gatherings, a time for large quantities of food and drink. But in 955, one man probably struggled to get into the spirit of the season. King Edred of England's stomach pains had been getting worse with each passing day. For quite some time now, he'd been abstaining from solid foods and living only on various liquids. But nothing that poor Edred did would soothe his inflamed innards. But he was still king. He still had duties. And one of the most important of his tasks was simply to be seen being the king. And so, despite his declining health, King Edred and his court remained mobile. They continued to visit the many corners of his kingdom. They continued to hold councils. And they continued to take part in royal ceremonies. These rituals were an important aspect of how a king maintained his power. They were part of how he rewarded his subjects for their fealty and how he maintained the honor culture that bound them to him. So even though Edred was suffering from crippling stomach pains, and even though his aversion to solid food was so significant that he was literally wasting away, he dutifully pushed through, appearing at important royal residences and holding impressive feasts, even though those feasts would have been full of food that he could no longer eat. And that is how Edred found himself traveling to Somerset, a region that was symbolically significant for the line of Wessex. It was where his grandfather Alfred had launched his guerrilla campaign against Guthrum. It was the territory that answered to his mighty general, Athelnoth. It was also close to the borders of the Cornish and the Welsh lands. And, as it was late November, St. Clement's Day was close. It was the perfect occasion to hold a feast to reinforce the bonds between king and and subject. But Edred's pain kept mounting. And on November 23rd, 955, on the very day of the Feast of St. Clement, after nine and a half years of rule, King Edred died at Somerset. He was only 32 years old. But despite his young age, his death wasn't a surprise to the king nor to the king's court. This had been a long time coming. And so his kingdom was prepared. Edred's will had been drafted, 
which provided, among other things, a large war chest specifically set aside for paying off Scandinavian invaders, should the need arise. His resting place had also been selected, and even though he died very close to Glastonbury, which was the resting place of his brother, King Edmund, that wasn't where he wanted to be interred. Just like his brothers before him, Edred chose to shun Newminster. He was one more son denying the royal cult that his father, Edward, had fostered. And instead, King Edred chose to be buried alongside the West Saxon kings of old, at Oldminster. But for all this preparation, there was still one issue that he just couldn't resolve in time. King Edred had died childless. The throne could not be passed on to a direct descendant, nor did he have any remaining brothers. The two main options for succession of the English crown were foreclosed. And that meant that the burden of rule would be passed down to the eldest son of the previous king, King Edmund. The trouble, though, was that King Edmund's sons were quite young. The reason that Edred came into the throne in the first place was that his nephews were too young to rule. And they were still young. Edwig, the eldest of the boys, was only about 14 years old. And my apologies to any 14-year-olds listening, but that is too young to rule. You're still dealing with puberty at that age. Forget putting down border rebellions of angry Welsh. You're occupied with the outright revolt that's being waged by your skin. And good luck commanding a court of scheming nobles when your voice is cracking. And don't even get me started on the mood swings. The point is that at 14, you've got a lot going on. And the last thing that you need is a full-time job running an entire goddamn kingdom. But sometimes, life throws curveballs at you. And the nobles of England decided that the crown should go to Edwig who, apparently, had actually an easier puberty than I did, because he was called Edwig Allfair due to his incredible beauty. And let me tell you, no one was calling me Jamie Allfair at 14. But, my unresolved adolescence trauma aside, the English court had to keep the country going, and so they made preparations for Edwig's coronation. And the story that follows comes from a document called The Life of Dunstan. And like any life of a saint, it's a mix of legend and history. The lives of saints are important sources for historians, but much like the writings of Gildas and other religious authors, these documents sometimes play fast and loose with the facts. The goal of these authors wasn't to give an objective history for future generations as we would understand it. Instead, their purpose was typically to tell a story of spiritual truth rather than objective fact. And so sometimes it can get a little bit weird. For example, the life of St. Dunstan contains a story where he fends off the devil with a pair of blacksmithing tongs. And I've played enough D&D to know that if you want to take on the devil, you need at least a plus five longsword. So I'm pretty skeptical about this whole tongs story. But that being said, the lives of saints remain some of our most important sources. And we can still draw a lot of factual details from them. We just also have to be careful about who we're listening to. And keep in mind that our narrator is a bit unreliable. And there is another reason why we should be careful, but I'm going to tell you that after the story. Back to the coronation. So there are two things to know about St. Dunstan, who was actually just Abbot Dunstan at the time of this tale. The first was that he was an ideological firebrand. He wanted to institute restrictive Benedictine reforms on the English monasteries. 
which, as you know, have been operating more like frat houses than houses of worship. The second thing to know is that he had a long and checkered history with the royal family of England. As a young man, he'd been exiled by King Athelstan. The life of Dunstan blames this on Dunstan's enemies, who conspired to turn the king against him. And then, once they were successful, they beat him and left him for dead in a cesspit. But he survived the attack, and he actually managed to get back in Athelstan's good graces. When Athelstan died, Dunstan served in King Edmund's court. But his enemies conspired against him once again, and had him exiled again. But he overcame this struggle, and he made a second triumphant return to court. And he actually became so close with King Edmund that the king gave him the abbey at Glastonbury. So now, Dunstan was no longer some minor reformist monk who nearly died in a pile of crap. Now, he was a major Benedictine reformer with ties to the crown. And those ties strengthened under the reign of King Edred, because he and King Edred were friends. So by the time of King Edred's death, despite the early hiccups in their relationship, Dunstan and the House of Wessex were inseparable. And so, of course, he was there at Edwig Allfair's coronation. He would have been an important spiritual shepherd for the new king, and by extension, for the kingdom. And so the coronation began. And English coronations during this era were long, ritualistic, and solemn affairs. They were intended to imbue the new king with an air of authority and connect his reign to ancient tradition and reestablish the duties that the king owes to his subjects and that the subjects owe to their king. It's a whole load of pomp. Many speeches in Latin paired with ceremonies involving special items, each with their own history and symbolic importance. And these objects very well may have come with their own speeches about the power and importance of them. There also would have been speeches about previous kings, with each speech seeking to tie the new king with the qualities and authority of his successors. And when there weren't speeches, there would have been high-ranking nobles wanting to talk politics, and old men wanting to share stories about past glories, and people seeking favors. And on and on and on it would go. Basically, it would be exactly the sort of event that I, at 40, would love. But when I was 14, the second that someone started telling me about the history of that third sword over there, ugh, my eyes would have started glazing over and I'd be looking for exits. But, at long last, young Edwig was anointed and crowned king. And finally, they got to the feast. But for some crazy reason, this feast wasn't a raucous event full of life and hope. Instead, it was also a pretty solemn affair. And somewhere among all that pomp and gravity, Edwig disappeared. And after a little bit, people began to take notice. They were asking where he was. Important figures wanted FaceTime. They'd come a long way to attend this event. The king should be here. And eventually, Archbishop Otta of Canterbury got tired of making excuses. So he asked Abbot Dunstan and Bishop Chinasiga to go find the king and bring him back to the feasting hall so he could speak with his guests. They went immediately. It can't have been far from their minds that it had been less than a decade since King Edmund had been assassinated at his own feast. So a missing king was no small matter. Now the feasting hall would have been large and busy, 
So my guess is their first hope was likely that the young man was just tucked in among some guests, or maybe idling in a dark corner with some mead. But no luck. He wasn't there. A search of the kitchens would similarly have proved fruitless. Maybe he was outside, relieving himself. Nope, not there either. Where was he? The new king needed to be found. He needed to get back to his court and do the important work of diplomacy. And if this was something worse, then the whole kingdom could be in crisis. And so, out of options, and acting under the auspices of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dunstan and Chinnasiga entered the king's private quarters. They opened the door, and there, on the floor, lie the king's crown. The symbol not only of the king's authority, but the unity of England had apparently been knocked off his head and tossed to the ground in some flurry of action. And they could still hear the sounds of struggle inside. So the bishop and abbot rushed into the apartments. And there they found the king. Young Aidwig Allfair was laid out and tangled in the embrace of a young noble girl, Elf Gifu. And her mom... Dunstan, the lion of Benedictine reform and the spiritual shepherd to the House of Wessex, stared at the new hope of England, who was laying stark naked between a noble mother and her daughter. And Edwig stared right back. And then the yelling started. Dunstan admonished the women. He demanded that they remember their place as subjects, as nobles, and as women. But they didn't budge. And neither did Edwig. He was king. And so rather than deferring to this meddling, pious, stammering abbot, young King Edwig stayed right where he was, on the couch with Elf Gifu and her mum. And he clearly showed no intention of stopping. And the ladies, for their part, don't seem to have been concerned with this preachy old prune either. The mother was a powerful landholder in her own right. She held sway in court. What could this dusty old priest do to them? It was a gross miscalculation, because what they didn't know is that Dunstan had fought off the devil with nothing but a pair of tongs. A couple horny teenagers and a land magnate weren't going to be enough to scare him out of his duty to the laws of God. And so fueled by outrage and potentially showing the sort of judgment that already got him exiled from England twice, Dunstan decided to bodily grab the king and force him to uh, disengage from the ladies. And then he and the Bishop of Litchfield made Edwig get dressed, put his crown back on, and then they frog-marched him back to the feast. And by doing this, Dunstan wasn't just upholding the propriety of the English crown. He was actually protecting the king personally, because had Edwig remained in his chambers, it would have been seen as an insult by many of the most powerful figures in England. But kings, and also most 14-year-old boys, have notoriously fragile egos. And King Edwig didn't see this as an act of service by a close friend of his father and uncle. He saw it much more simply. Edwig Allfair had been cock-blocked on the night of his coronation feast. And then he'd been treated not like a king, but like a child. It wasn't something that Edwig was going to forget anytime soon. And Elf Gifu and her rich mum weren't too pleased with Dunstan either. In this moment, Dunstan had accidentally made himself some incredibly dangerous enemies. And this night was going to come back to haunt him. So, 
on this holiday dedicated to romance. Don't forget the flowers. Don't forget to make sure you take time to make that special someone know what they mean to you. And also, don't forget to lock the damn door. Happy Valentine's Day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Reddit now, and you can find all our communities by going to the community section of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>